From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to a very special episode 41 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. I think we almost have all of our Christmas decorations down. <laughs> oh my gosh! I well, I guess I shouldn't say too much. I just pulled down the last of the lights from outside. Uh, uh, this past weekend, so I wasn't great about it, but uh, everything that's been inside, minus the tree that's sitting right beside me, isn't down, but I'm throwing that one away, so yeah. it's like, just, like, uh, I don't really, uh, I'll get rid of it eventually. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we only have the tree up. But normally we are the last ones in the neighborhood with the lights up, but I am so proud to say there are still people in the neighborhood plugging in their lights every night. So it is not us. But um, yeah. yeah, we're a little late just because I was, you know, out visiting you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that delayed me by a weekend. But otherwise, I, we're doing well. I understand. That was the, the same thing for us. My... My wake-up call that I need to actually take down the lights is when I looked at the when I looked at the neighbors across the way and I saw that they finally took theirs down and I'm like, oh gosh, I I need to pull those. It's because they had. I felt like theirs was obnoxiously Christmassy, and so it was like one of those situations. Where it's like, okay, well, if they're finally taking theirs down, then that's a that's a message that everyone in the neighborhood should have theirs down. So. Oh, I thought you were going to say because they hung up their Valentine's decorations. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We we celebrate many holidays in my neighborhood, but not not Valentine's Day decorations. <laughs> not yet. Oh well, well. I said this was a very special episode because it is. We're we're going to tomorrow by going back in time, and uh, we're finally bringing you the lost episodes from October before yeah. I went on my China trip with Dreams Unlimited Travel and the um, Diz. So uh, so finally. Craig and I are bringing you, in these next two weeks, the conclusion of our tour of the Magic Kingdom. And, you know, we're, for this episode, we're just sort of going to, um, we're just going to transport you back to the, to the land of 2017. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we recorded this show. Well, our voices will be different, uh, our attitudes will be different, and... Uh, it's it's just going to be different overall, but uh, as 
if you can tell this is part one of two parts it was a very long conversation that i feel like we captured magic in a bottle that first time and it's best to just leave it at that one so we're not redoing it you just get to hear the old episode pick up right as if we were back in 2017 i know we're gonna party like it's 2017 and i had a I re-listened to both episodes today, and I I'd forgotten what a bad cold I had back then. <laughs> oh, I, I remember I was, it well. I was clearly miserable. <laughs> so, anyways, I apologize for all the coughing and sniffing, but we're gonna let you take it away, and let's go back to the land of tomorrow. In this episode, Craig and I will be concluding our tour of the Magic Kingdom with the most troublesome and most frequently reimagined of all the realms, Tomorrowland. And it has been frequently reimagined so many times that our tour is going to cover two episodes of Connecting with Walt. So I wish Disneyland's Tomorrowland got changed up as often as the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. Yeah, but at the same time, too, if the changes aren't for the better, do we really want it to change at all? Well, you know, it'd be nice if they did something with that that people mover track in Disneyland. Yeah, but I mean, we have have plenty of things that I would rather see just sit vacant and awkwardly throughout (laughs) the entire land than be what they are now. But I'm not going to call any of those out. (laughs) <laughs> well, maybe as we get through our tour. Oh, exactly. Our, I don't want our tour day tour. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it all up front. You know, I gotta <laughs> gotta keep people listening. Yeah. Well, from the day Tomorrowland opened in Disneyland, Walt Disney realized the problem between imagining the future and presenting that imagined future in permanent facilities with shows and attractions that will have significance for more than a few years. Um, Walt Disney dedicated Disneyland's Tomorrowland with the words, a vista into a world of wondrous ideas, signifying man's achievements, a step into the future with predictions of constructed things to come. Tomorrow offers new frontiers in science, adventure, and ideals, the atomic age, the challenge of outer space, and the hope for a peaceful, unified world. Now, during his lifetime, Walt updated Disneyland's Tomorrowland twice. In 1959, he added the Matterhorn, Submarine Voyage, and Monorail. In 1967, a completely rebuilt Tomorrowland debuted. And this version of Tomorrowland, A World on the Move, is considered by many the best version of Tomorrowland, um, me included there. Now, when the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland opened in 1971, it was based on the architectural design and theme of Disneyland's. In keeping with the futurism portrayed in films at the time, the cold, dramatic architecture was heightened with large white buildings and clean geometric shapes. The triangular buildings at Disneyland were fully realized, and the entrance to the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland had two enormous pylons, which cascaded water down into the moat of Cinderella Castle. And complementing the pylons were two large blue triangular walls, which also released water into the moat. And these waterfalls were often shut off, as the slightest change of wind would spray water onto the guests. 
In the early 1980s, the waterfalls were permanently shut off and a large mosaic was painted on the blue walls and some blue stripes were painted on the two pylons. Now, the colors of Tomorrowland were mainly whites, complemented with ochre on the outside, and the interior of the buildings were accented with reds, oranges, yellows, and browns. And later on, the outside colors were changed to pinks and blues around the people mover tracks. And like Disneyland's Tomorrowland, which almost didn't open in time for the park's debut, the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland got off to an inglorious start with only two attractions on opening day the skyway and the grand prix raceway so tomorrowland was quite barren and sterile during this time due to the land being very flat and undetailed a large orange wall was located past the two large show buildings and blocked guests from walking any further than the Skyway Station. And the wall had a small stage built into it and a large outdoor food court sat adjacent to it to compensate for a lack of food venues at the time. And it was removed within two years when the Carousel of Progress took its place. By the end of the year, Flight to the Moon and the Circle Vision 360 building were added, but it would be another four years until the planned roster of attractions was complete. If you had Wings, Star Jets, Carousel of Progress, Wedway People Mover, and Space Mountain were running by the end of 1975. Now, for some of the backstories of the attractions that originated at Disneyland, you may want to listen to my 60 Years of Disneyland series. So let's start out with the Skyway. And, and this was a gondola tramway between Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. And passengers had a bird's eye view of the Magic Kingdom in exchange for a D coupon. Yeah. Now, now, this version of the Skyway was unique from Disneyland's in that it did not travel in a straight line over the park. Gondolas descended to an L-shaped turn midway through the attraction before ascending again and traveling on towards their destination. And frequently a cast member was stationed at the turn to help guide the gondolas through the turn. And after 28 years, the Magic Kingdom Skyway closed on November 8, 1999, exactly five years after the Disneyland version closed. An article in the Orlando Sentinel on uh, November 11th, 1999, entitled Sunsets on Skyway Ride at the Magic Kingdom, included Disney's official reason for the closing. It's part of our ongoing efforts to phase out some of the older attractions and introduce new things to keep our parts exciting for our new and repeat visitors. Walt Disney World spokesman Diane Letter said Tuesday, It's just something whose time has come. Disneyland in California closed its Skyway ride in 1994. The Magic Kingdom Skyway, which has been running since the park's opening in 1971, will be replaced by another attraction. But Letter would not say what it would be or when it would open. The ride's closing is not a result of any concerns about its safety, Letter said. Certainly, it was one of the older rides, letters said. This was based on our guest evaluations and our desire to renew and keep them fresh. So, um, yeah, yeah so, so due to guest demand, I guess. I, so. I can't wait till it gets replaced by that, the, another attraction. 
Like I'm, I know. I'm still waiting for that. I know the new exciting attraction. Yeah, I can't imagine so, what it's um, going to be. <laughs> Maybe it's that stage that had that stitch show for a little while. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Tomorrowland station was partially demolished in the summer of 2009 during the refurbishment of Space Mountain, with its lower level left intact to continue serving as a restroom facility. The Fantasyland station was used for stroller parking, then later demolished in 2011 to make way for an expanded Tangle-themed restrooms. There is your... There's your exciting new attraction. And and also provided a new transition area between Fantasyland and Liberty Square. However, 20 years after closing the Skyway in 2017, the Walt Disney Company announced plans to revive a modern version of the Skyway at the Walt Disney World Resort. The new Disney Skyliner will connect Disney's Art of Animation, Pop Century, and Caribbean Beach Resorts, as well as the soon-to-be-built Disney Riviera Resort with Disney's Hollywood Studios and the International Gateway at Epcot Center. The Skyliner cabs are to be larger than the Skyway gondola since the Skyliner is designed to serve as commuter transport between the resorts, Epcot, and Disney's Hollywood Studios. So, Craig, do you have any memory of the um, the Skyway? Oh, yeah, I, I do. I, mm-hmm. I must have hated it because I am <clears throat> afraid of heights. I know oh. that. That does not seem like me at all, especially considering that I spent time working at a roller coaster where I had to deal with heights. And I, I can I, I can ride roller coasters, but I don't like I, I'm strapped down in those. There's no potential way for me to ever fall out unless things went really, really wrong. But something like the Skyway, that's always stuff that I've, I've tried to avoid, because if you're you're if you let your stupidity kind of take control, then you can get really hurt. And that's always been in the back of my mind on it. But I, I wrote it as a kid back in the, in the nineties when I would come on vacation with my family. And I, I know I have photos of me on there as well too, because, because why not? It was, it was so cool. Unlike other gondola style rides, it, it just, it was so unique, especially that the L-shaped turn. I, I can mm-hmm. distinctly remember that perfectly. But but my best memory of it actually comes from the Fantasyland station and just that the look of it as a whole. I mean, for people who didn't make it to uh, the Magic Kingdom before that was gone and Tangled Bathrooms came in the way, it, it was just this beautiful Swiss chalet that was kind of sitting up on a hill like it was it was just absolutely perfect it looked it looked like it would have fit in perfectly right beside like pinocchio's village house and Mm -hmm. just like fit fit right in with that whole theme and and it was just such a great building and it's it's sad that it had to go away not that not that the tangled restrooms aren't wonderful because they they are they serve a much needed purpose in terms of uh, helping with a transition between Liberty Square and Fantasyland—that's that's definitely arguable. But but overall, I Skyway is one of those things. I I understand operationally why it doesn't make sense to have it, especially 
in our current state, uh, it it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to be in the park. So I, I, I it, I'm glad I have the memories of it. I guess is mm-hmm. my overall thoughts and feelings yeah. on it. Yeah, I rode both the Disneyland version and that went through the Matterhorn oh. and the and the um, yeah, and then of course the Magic Kingdom's version. Both were great. They're terrific rides, and uh, yeah, I, I do miss them. I mean, but unfortunately, with the uh, civility of um, our society sort of declining a bit, I, I just think in today's day and age, people would be tossing things out of the cabs uh-huh. and spitting and. And they would close anyway. Yeah, I so, I, I completely um, agree. No, they it only will take one person doing something just absurd, like dropping dropping a camera on someone below. Or obviously, no one's going to drop a camera, but something heavy that could do a mm-hmm. lot of damage. And I, I could definitely see that happening. But gosh, I'm jealous mm-hmm. that that I never was able to do the Disneyland's going through the Matterhorn. That had to be just so cool. It was, it was very cool. So, and it was before the Matterhorn was themed. So you just saw the raw Matterhorn inside, you know, the, yeah. oh. the, raw, the, the, you know, the, the structure of the coaster. Yeah. So it was neat. And it was noisy oh. when you went through it. Every, every um, time well, no, I see okay, the so, pictures, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do you think of the uh, Disney Skyliner? Because that's enclosed, so you don't have to worry about stupidity taking over and you somehow tumbling out. Yeah, no, I I, I don't mind those gondolas. Uh, it, <laughs> it's one of those bizarre things. Like, I, I grew up skiing and still do when I get the chance to make it up north in the winter. And I haven't been out on the West Coast skiing since, I think... Oh, gosh, I, w- I must have still been in high school the last time I was out there. But, you know, I- I've ridden in enclosed gondolas before going up a lift. And, and those just they don't bother me at all. I'm, I'm perfectly I'm perfectly fine with those. I do. I do understand the issues that come along with them of what happens if it gets stuck and, and all those issues. But that's the same exact risk we take every single time the monorail is mm-hmm. acting up. You could get stuck in an elevated position for for amount of time, but you know gondolas are they're very they're very reliable forms of transportation. And my my only wish is that this would be kind of in a in a different route. So I, I like the I like it going between uh, the hotels in Epcot and Hollywood Studios. But as a local, I'm probably never going to get any use out of this because I don't stay on property that often. And when I do, it's usually not any of the hotels that are uh, that are on yeah. the list of where it's stopping at. So usually usually when, when I'm on property, it's because it's splurge vacations at some of the deluxes. But I, I, I will try to ride it as much as possible, just because. Oh, yeah, I definitely will Yeah, as well. Looking forward to it. Now... The Grand Prix Raceway differed from the Disneyland Utopia as it was not set on a futuristic roadway. Instead, the backstory for the Grand Prix Raceway was an international road race with guests taking a wheel of a Grand Prix race car that can reach a top 
speed of seven and one half miles per hour. Originally sponsored by Goodyear, it required a C ticket. This attraction was expanded in 1973, then shortened in 1974 to make way for Space Mountain. And it was shortened again in the late 80s when Mickey's Birthday Land was built. In 1994, as part of the new Tomorrowland project, the attraction became the Tomorrowland Indy Speedway. Though the track and vehicles remain unchanged, it was remodeled again in 1999 as a result of Disney partnering with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with the addition of some famous items from the Indianapolis Speedway, like the Yard of Bricks, the Scoring Pylon, Gasoline Alley, and the Wheels and Wings logo. Also, panels of the Indy 500, Brickyard 400, and the Grand Prix Raceway were added to the loading area. When the partnership ended in 2008, the attraction was renamed Tomorrowland Speedway. In 2012, the track was shortened yet again for the new placement of the Dumbo the Flying Elephant attraction in Storybook Circus. So the Speedway was 3,118 feet when it opened on October 1st, 1971, but has since been shortened about 30% to 2,000 feet, but it does have a new curve. Now, from 1994 to 2009, when guests rode the Tomorrowland Transit Authority over the Tomorrowland Indy Speedway, Mr. Johnson would give a traffic report, and he would always say, Hi there, Tomorrowland travelers. This is Mr. Johnson in Skyview Hovercraft 1, bringing you the latest Tomorrowland traffic report. As usual, everything is perfect on Tomorrowland superhighways. And Mr. Johnson is actually a reference to a character from Mission to Mars, a former Tomorrowland attraction. There is a sponsor lounge in the control tower near the front of the attraction. Um, Al Unserbot is the official host of the Tomorrowland Indy 500. Al Unserbot Jr. is the four-time winner of the Constellation Cup. So, and I'm sure that the Grand Prix Race Ray is something you um you ride frequently. Oh, absolutely! Okay. How could I not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, gosh, this is hard. I couldn't even tell you the last time that I've actually been on the Tomorrowland Speedway, and I I don't know why, but the last time I rode, I I just could barely fit in the cars, which I am. I'm very tall. I mean, I'm not super tall. I'm not, I'm not a freak or anything. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm six four when I'm, when I'm wearing tennis shoes. So I'm definitely above average height. And these cars are such a tight, tight fit. And it's very difficult for me to to enjoy it when I'm being crammed in a sardine can. So I just, and then on top of that. Our speedway is just so incredibly boring. It's just some easy turns and and nothing else, no intricate theming, just just kind of dull. So I've I've I, I just don't do it anymore. But then the the odd part is when I'm in Disneyland, I try to make it a a must do now. Anytime I'm out there to ride to ride Autopia because I I just love everything about that. Going through the hills and through all the greenery it's just that works perfectly and ours is just it's almost like the exact same comparison between disneyland and walt disney world walt disney world's a bunch of concrete 
and open spaces in Disneyland is lush and full of life. And yeah, that's that's the comparison. So for all I care, it it, it should have went away with the announcement of of Tron. And we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've written the Grand Prix Raceway since our children were in middle school. So that's probably been about 20 years. Utopia uh, at Disneyland, I ride more often. It's not one of my favorite attractions, but our granddaughter likes it. So we'll go on it there. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. Ours is themed, you know, more. And, you know, yeah, we have we have 60 something years of vegetation growing around it. Yeah. And you know, uh, broken down, uh, a broken down people mover track too. What more could you ask for? Yeah, really. <laughs> that is the one downside of it. Yeah. Oh well. Could be worse. I suppose. So um, now, one of one of the things I really enjoyed at both parks was the Circle Vision 360, and this opened in November 1971. Now, the basic Circle Vision 360 system had debuted at Disneyland as Circarama in 1955. And Wet Imagineering created a full circle of movie screens to completely surround guests. Using nine screens and nine projectors, the action unfolded just above the heads of viewers. And handbars were provided to hold or to lean against whilst standing and viewing the film, since some guests reported becoming dizzy whilst viewing the film. Now, similar to Google Earth's filming process, a special rig of nine cameras were used to create the Circle Vision movie, and these nine cameras were simultaneously shown on screens directly across the room, projected from small gaps between the giant curved screens. Now, America the Beautiful was the first of the Circle Vision 360 films at Walt Disney World. The film was originally shot for the 1958 World's Fair in Brussels, and then it was brought to Disneyland in 1960. <clears throat> the film was just over 18 minutes in length and originally sponsored by Monsanto. And at Disneyland, they're best known for their sponsorship of the now extinct Adventure Through Inner Space. <coughs> now, the Magic Kingdom version of America the Beautiful was an updated version of the 360 film shown at Disneyland in 1955. And this was a free attraction and it did not require a coupon. Taking a little sip of tea there. After a little over two years, the attraction closed in March of 1974. And the film was modified for the nation's bicentennial in 1976. And during this time, a new film, Magic Carpet Round the World played in the theater. This film was approximately 20 minutes long and it transported guests to more than 20 countries around the world. Now, Monsanto remained the sponsor during the run of the film. And portions of Magic Carpet Round the World were reused years later as part of the Timekeeper attraction. In America the Beautiful returned to the theater in 1975 and played until 1979 when Magic Carpet returned until 1984. 
the final original version of Circle Vision 360, American Journeys, was shown in the Tomorrowland Theater from 1984 until its closing in early 1994. And with the reimagining of Tomorrowland into its current retro future appearance, Walt Disney Imagineering updated the Circle Vision 360 experience and they transformed the attraction into a transportarium a name change to Tomorrowland Metropolis Science Center half a year later was introduced to fit better into the new theme of Tomorrowland, which we'll talk about more in our next um, episode on about our tour of Tomorrowland. The updated attraction also known as Timekeeper, brought with it a full storyline, pre-show, and host characters. Robin Williams voiced the Timekeeper host animatronic, and Rhea Perlman voiced Nine Eyes, the time-traveling robot, which brought the images into the theater. Jeremy Irons appeared as H.G. Wells in the film Timekeeper, which was the first Circle Vision 360 film to incorporate CGI effects and a fully realized storyline. Now, Timekeeper closed in 2006 and with it, Circle Vision 360 in the Magic Kingdom. Today, Monsters Incorporated laugh for an interactive attraction based on the Monsters, Inc. movies collects guests' laughter to power Monstropolis. Circle Vision 360, however, can still be found around Epcot at the at the Canadian and Chinese pavilions in World Showcase uh, under the names O Canada and Reflections of China, both of which are set to receive a seamless screen update. And I believe um, Reflections of China is supposed to be um, completely redone. Yes, yeah, the new film and everything with it. So very interesting. I'm one of the rare people out there who's actually very excited that it's getting some... uh, some TLC. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. I mean, I'm sure you'll love it even more after getting to be in China and experience I'm, the real thing. I know. Yeah, I've ever, since I knew I was going to China, every time I visited Epcot, I've gone to see that film. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, Circle Vision 360 could be considered a precursor to today's virtual reality on a large screen and even the attraction Soren. I mean, you really felt like you were driving in a car down Lombard Street in San Francisco or on a horse-drawn carriage on an autumn day in New England. The film left you feeling optimistic about life and about the future and reflected Walt Disney's optimism about the future. Um, It was a classic Disney Park experience where grandparents, parents, and children could have fun together. So, did you see... So, what versions of the circle vision 360 did you see i must i must have seen uh well i mean obviously i know i've done the timekeeper i have very very fond memories of that but that's that's circle vision with an asterisk of course so i i would say that the i probably saw american journeys then because my first trip was as a child who could actually remember stuff that was in 1992. So, and then I came back in 94, but that must've been close. So I probably would have done American journeys back in, back in 1992. And I've seen some videos here and there on stuff like magic carpet around the world. So 
Uh, I'm slightly familiar with it all, but I'm kind of like I just said about China. I'm I'm a huge proponent of Circle Vision. I I do love it. It's just, uh, I mean, it is literally virtual reality, just not with a headset over your head but you stand in that you stand in those rooms and it's larger than life and it's just enveloping you in every way and yeah you're you're right it is kind of a precursor to soren and before that you know you had the omnimax domes and horizons that were mm-hmm. the precursor to that and then you, you start off with the circle vision so it, it's it really is kind of the base to it but i I, I hope Circle Vision never goes away completely from Disney Parks, even if it means one day they have to give everyone a VR headset and say, stand in this room and look around in a circle. Uh, <laughs> at least then it, the the concept will still be there. And then they can say, truly, it's Circle Vision 360 plus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope that they, they never get rid of the films. Yeah. The 360 films. They keep them in some fashion. Yeah, I saw all the versions that played at Disneyland. Um, and then we had another one called Wonders of China that also played at Disneyland. And um, I don't know if I ever saw Circle Vision 360 at the Magic Kingdom. So if I did, I don't recall. Yeah, so. I would love if they could just keep one theater somewhere on property and just do like a trip <clears throat> where they play all the Circle Vision films and you'll walk in and you don't know which one you're going to get but you'll enjoy it anyways yeah that would be fun actually so well the another journey was flight to the moon and that opened on december 24th 1971 and it was nearly identical to the disneyland version um after a brief introduction in a holding area passengers entered the pre-show room mission control for an introduction to their flight by the director of operations mr tom morrow that was before he became a traffic reporter apparently and um and then after welcoming everyone to mission control mr morrow explained the purpose of mission control and introduced the vehicle for the upcoming flight to the moon guests then exited mission control and walked to the launch pad and entered their spacecraft, which was a was circular with a row of seats surrounding a recessed center of the craft. On the walls were multiple viewing screens and large screens on the ceiling floor. Um, after passengers were seated, the flight captains welcomed everyone. A countdown began and the engines ignited. As the craft launched into space, the entire room, including the seats, began to shake with audible force. A few moments later, as the craft exited the Earth's atmosphere, the seats slid to simulate the change in gravity. During the flight, passengers met one of the astronauts working on the moon's surface and flew over the moon's surface, which they saw from the bottom view screen of the craft. Whilst there, they were directed to look at the sun. As the importance of the mass of burning gases was discussed, a meteor shower suddenly struck the craft, causing it to shake dangerously and the emergency sirens to wail. Thanks to the piloting efforts of our valiant captain, the craft returned safely to Earth with all passengers unharmed. 
One significant difference between the Disneyland and Magic Kingdom attractions is that the Magic Kingdom's version opened more than two years after the United States landed its first men on the moon. So the attraction was slightly less thrilling to guests who had become accustomed to Apollo astronauts walking on the moon. After a little less than four years of moon journeys, Flight to the Moon launched its last guests in the spring of 1975. Just a few months later, the attraction reopened with a similar premise and experience, but this time as Mission to Mars. The show was designed in cooperation with NASA and was basically a revised and updated version of the previous attraction, Flight to the Moon. Guests would now be launched on a spacecraft into space and then approach the surface of the red planet Mars. Mission to Mars ended its space program on October 4th, 1993. It reopened as the extraterrestrial, I can never say this word, extraterrestrial alien encounter as part of the Magic Kingdom's new Tomorrowland on June 20th, 1995. You nailed it. Yeah, thank you. The the attraction terrified both children and adults, and in a controversial decision, it was closed in 2003 and was replaced by Stitch's Great Escape, which opened in 2004 and reused many of the elements from extraterrestrial alien encounter in a more light and comical way. And we'll have more on that later on in our tour. Yes. So, flight to the moon. This this seems so cool to me when I was a boy. <laughs> yeah, I've I've obviously never experienced it. I have seen videos on it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure they at least filmed some bits of like the actual attraction experience at one point in time to be shown on one of the versions of of Disneyland or Wonderful World of Color. One mm-hmm. of those shows. I. I know I've definitely seen lots of archival footage of the experience of Flight to the Moon. And Yeah, they definitely did. Yeah, and that whole that whole concept fascinated me. I know for sure I did Mission to Mars. I, I can I can perfectly remember being in the room and the, the above and below cameras well video screens and and actually feeling like you were in this big room that was traveling these far distances and, and getting that experience. And because that's, that's when I would have been five years old and just captivated by it. And then flash forward to 1996 when I was nine years old and then being terrified from alien encounter, but uh, de- definitely a change, but no, I, I enjoyed mission to Mars for, for what it was. And Flight to the Moon's one that I wish I would have been able to experience, even even after its time. I, I know a lot of the the glitz and glamour would wear off after after making it to the moon, but I don't know. There's still there's still that blind optimism that you get in Disney attractions that even if it's dated, it it still has that warmth to it. That mm. is why we come back to mm. Disney over and over again. And what made this more exciting for me when I was a boy is we were at the height of our space program, you know, that I grew up with. So, you know, that was when a a space launch was an event 
the the country stopped to watch it on television. It was a a group experience, and we've lost that. Um, yeah, I mean, if you know, if you well. don't live in Central Florida or on the coast, you basically you don't care. But mm-hmm. I mean, we do at least. I every time I know there's a launch, if I can't be outside, then I'm I'm by a TV tuning into to Channel 13 and always watching the launches. It's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's what's cool about progress is that space travel is becoming more commonplace. So it's not the event that it was, you know, when I was growing up. It's still cool to me. I know I'm never going to make it up there. So (laughs) I'll just keep living vicariously and and dreaming. Oh, I don't know. You might get into one of those virgin, virgin air space, um, space planes or elon musk's rocket plane maybe one day but yeah. it's uh, my dreams <laughs> were ended when i found out that there was a height limit to be an astronaut way back uh-huh. in the day and i'm like okay well i was too tall so no point in dreaming. Be, <laughs> bigger space shuttles <laughs> yeah no named it one one day one day space will be accessible for everyone regardless of height yes well we're going to talk about uh air travel a little closer to to the surface um headquartered in miami and dominating air routes between new york and florida eastern airlines was the first official airline of walt disney world and during the grand opening special Eastern aired an ad where a girl has a nightmare and tells various characters in a forest, uh, like the Seven Dwarfs, the Mad Hatter, the Big Bad Wolf, and the Walrus from Alice in Wonderland, that she is looking for the Magic Kingdom and if they know the way there. They either either run away or laugh or ignore her. She then sees a boy dressed as Peter Pan sitting in a tree, and he whistles at her. (coughs) She asks him if he knows the way, and he replies, sure I do. But can you fly? She shakes her head no as his words echo around her. And dizzying shots of the forest are shown, ending with a shot of Dumbo. She then wakes up and the voice of Orson Welles says to the viewer, You can fly to a magic kingdom that's right outside your hotel window to Walt Disney World in Florida on the airline of Walt Disney World. The airline that believes dreams really can come true. The Wings of Man. Now, Eastern Airlines reportedly invested $10 million in the Omnimover attraction, If You Had Wings. Opening on June 5th, 1972, this attraction combined film, music, three-dimensional sets, and speed effects to take guests on a four-and-a-half-minute journey from the Magic Kingdom to exotic locales around the world. The attraction was located across from the Flight to the Moon, and it required no coupon for admission. The attraction was designed by Claude Coates, and the haunting and repetitive theme song was written by Buddy Baker with the lyrics by Exitensio. The 102 Omnimovers moved guests throughout the attraction at a casual, even pace of two feet per second. The sense of various speeds of motion came from the use of rear projection films and various other visual effects. Our journey began with the arrival to the attraction. 
So passing through the entryway, guests entered the holding area designed to resemble a spacious modern airport terminal. And after viewing a pre-show about Eastern Airlines, guests walked down a winding switchback queue resembling the boarding ramp of an airline and stepped onto a speed ramp before boarding a royal blue Omnimover. Guests were then transported through a large opening in an oversized globe. And the opening on this globe was located just south of Florida, so guests passed through the Caribbean, one of Eastern Airlines' most popular routes. The vehicles would rotate backwards and then turn around to go up an incline. And the first scene guests experienced as they passed through the globe was first total darkness, then images of white seagulls flying by. And gradually, the seagulls turned into jet airplanes taking flight. As the passengers flew into the first scene, a chorus of singers started singing, If You Had Wings. Next, guests would travel through Mexico, including gliding by two- and three-dimensional props and film projections of an Aztec pyramid, Acapulco cliff divers, a large large stone dragon's head of Quaxacuatl, Guests cruised by modern Mexico and with flower boats and a fiesta. Guests were next transported to the Caribbean, seeing an ocean liner with its boarding ramp and passengers lining the deck, throwing streamers whilst a, st- a steel drum band played. Below, there were smaller boats in the water as divers looked for treasure. There was a humorous scene of a tourist standing in front of a sport fishing shack holding his catch, a marlin, only this fish changed length as his wife took a photo. Of course, there is a scene of people enjoying limbo on the beach. As their journey continued, guests enjoyed a Bahamian marching band playing their rendition of If You Had Wings, whilst various images of street traffic passed by. The theme was repeated throughout this section, but now the street traffic alternated with scenes of scurrying flamingos as an iconic Bahamian traffic officer in a white hat, white shorts, and knee socks attempted to keep control of the traffic mayhem. Guests were then transported to Jamaica's Dunn River Falls, with a scene of people walking up the falls, a lagoon in Trinidad, and the New Orleans French Quarter during Mardi Gras. After the New Orleans scene came the most exciting part of this attraction, the speed room. Now, the speed room was one of the most exciting parts of the attraction. Like I said, the roar of a jet engine was heard and funky bass and guitar music was played as the Omnimover vehicles entered the speed room. As guests traveled down the middle of this huge bullet-shaped tunnel with various 70-millimeter projections of high-speed adventures shown on the walls. Tilting the Omnimover backwards as large fans gave the sensation of motion enhanced the sensation of moving fast through a dune buggy across the desert, water skiing on a lake, and flying down a forest path on a speeding train. Once passengers left the speed room, they entered the final destination of the attraction, the mirror room. 
This room is exactly as it sounds. A box-shaped room covered with large floor-to-ceiling mirrors that had two 70-millimeter projectors reflecting images of snow-capped mountains, sand-covered deserts, and other relaxing scenes. And these scenes were shot in an upward motion, giving another type of forced perspective, that of being lifted. And finally, a projection of birds and an Eastern Airlines plane flew across the sky. As guests exited the mirror room, Orson Welles' voice intoned, You do have wings. You can do all these things. You can widen your world. Eastern, the wings of man. The wings of man was the slogan of Eastern Airlines at the time. In the exit lobby of the attraction was an Eastern Airlines travel desk with Eastern Airlines travel representatives. And for many years, you could get your very own Eastern Airlines pilot wings here. Um, Eastern also distributed items, items like matchbooks covers and fun flight bags for children. It contained items like hand puppets, paper masks, puzzles, and a book cover um, or park map. Um, a park map like book cover and they also distributed brochures advertising personalized vacations um, large diorama windows two on the right and one on the left allowed the Mexico, Jamaica and Trinidad scenes to be available to riders on the Wedway People Mover um, the window on the left was removed when if you had wings was replaced with Delta Dream Flight now, one of the most memorable scenes of this attraction, or I should say one of the most memorable features of this attraction, was the noise of the, the film's projectors. No matter how loud the music played, the clicking sound of the 38 16-millimeter projectors was clearly audible throughout the ride, and it mixed in with the music. Now, in early 1987, Eastern Airlines withdrew its sponsorship, and the attraction was closed in June of that year. And some speculated that Eastern discontinued their sponsorship as part of cutbacks and budget concerns. However, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, staff writer Neil Borowski's article entitled Disney Gang No Longer Flying Easter Eastern Airlines uh, on June 25, 1987, said that not only will Eastern Airlines not be the sponsor of the attraction, but also it had been removed as the official airline. Delta Airlines has now become both the official airline of Walt Disney World and the new attraction sponsor. The article stated, Disney World declined to say which side broke off the relationship with Eastern. However, Eastern spokeswoman Paula Musto said that in recent years, how much that association was worth was being questioned. She continued to say, such an association afforded Eastern the pleasant feelings, but warm fuzzies are less important than direct hard-hitting programs. After continued labor disputes and a crippling strike in 1989, Eastern Airlines went bankrupt and was liquidated in 1991. After Eastern Airlines ceased its sponsorship, the Disney company quickly removed all traces of Eastern Airlines from the attraction. The exterior changed to feature the birds' artwork from the beginning side instead of the Eastern Airlines logo, while the attraction inside remains. A new song with a melody vaguely like Up, Up, and Away by the Fifth Dimension, but definitely not that song, with different lyrics than the original attraction was introduced. The attraction was renamed If You Could Fly until it closed on January 3rd, 1989. 
On June 23rd, 1989, Delta Airlines, now the official airline of Walt Disney World, debuted Delta Dream Flight. And according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, this newfound friendship with Mickey and the gang will cost Delta between $20 million and $30 million over the next 10 years. But Delta expects the return on its investment to come in both image and more business. Delta Dream Flight used the same truck layout and ride vehicles, but all new scenery and music was added. Guests entered the building into a small queue designed to look like an airport boarding terminal, similar to if you had wings. The front end nose and cockpit of an actual Delta 767 was on the left as guests entered the queue, as if they were passengers actually boarding the jetliner. The Delta debt was marked as the spirit of Delta in bright gold. As guests made their way into the queue opposite the jet, they entered a terminal gate with posters on the wall that included many exciting and exotic destinations of the world. Eventually, guests would make their way back up the terminal gate and enter the side of the jet into a mirrored hallway with bright blue, green, red, and yellow neon lights and then board their Omnimovers. Guests first encountered a giant mural depicting the golden era of aviation in the United States along the wall in the first room. The next room had a giant pop-up book-style spinning room, which had a hot air balloon and other flying contraptions spinning by them as the dream flight song played. Then entered the second room of the flight, which was designed to look as if they were a giant crop field of the American Midwest in in 1920, biplanes, planes, and barnstormers flying all over the flying circus air show. The pilot of a crashed through a barn and was stuck in the rafters on the ceiling of the barn. The third room was just a big screen with a film clip of an stuntman standing on top of a. Thus, it performed dizzy air. Next came the era of the propeller planes when commercial flights started taking passengers around the globe. On the left, guests passed the inside of a posh, elegant airliner's fuselage, depicting the dining area of the first-class section of the aircraft. Then a gentleman in a suit stood on the guest's left in a Japanese garden where he was being greeted by the Japanese locals. Coming up on the right-hand side below the guests were the rooftops and the skyline of Paris, France. Guests flew past the rooftops of a Paris street and could see quaint little shops and tourists sitting below on the patio of a French cafe. As the guests moved ahead, a sign saying Jet Age spun in circles as the flight attendant's voice said, Ladies and gentlemen, your dream flight will depart immediately for the future. Please prepare for supersonic takeoff. To the immediate left on the wall was a giant painting of a jetliner taking off towards the sky. As guests made their way forward into the super speed tunnel, a giant spinning light along with fog and fans gave the impression that they were about to actually enter the inside of a turbojet engine. The sounds of an engine roaring to life and taking off then blasted out over the sound system. As guests entered the tunnel, they saw footage of a plane taking off on a runway to simulate their flight's departure, eventually lifting off and flying through the clouds in the sky. 
The next stream was another film clip on the right, which showed a computer computer generated clips of the guests above the earth flying in a canyon above water and eventually flying in a futuristic city with fireworks exploding all around them. The first theatrical format 70 millimeter computer animation ever produced. The final room of the attraction was a giant pop-up book with destinations spread out on huge pages, whilst a projection of a Delta jet flew by above the display into the clouds. The exit area was a room with the Delta logo painted on the wall, and with more posters of destinations from around the world that guests could visit on Delta Airlines. There were no perky Delta representatives waiting to sell Delta vacations to guests. At the end of 1995, Delta discontinued their sponsorship of the attraction. The decision not to continue sponsorship was made in part due to the costs of sponsoring the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, where the airline was headquartered. The attraction's name was changed to simply Dreamflight and operated until June 1996, when it then became known as Disney's Take Flight. Unlike the change in scenery and music from If You Had Wings to Delta Dream Flight, Disney's Take Flight kept basically the same scenery and made only minor changes to the lyrics. Take Flight eventually ended its journey in January 1998, bringing an end to flight-based attractions in Tomorrowland. Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger eventually replaced the attraction. So, Craig, did you ride on like Dream Flight when you were a boy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was actually one of my favorite attractions in all of Walt Disney World, Delta Dream Flight. Uh, probably why I still have a fascination with Delta to this very day. But I, I loved this attraction so much. Uh, it, it really did kind of instill that love of flight into my life especially back then when when we didn't drive down to walt disney world we flew so even though you could do the same thing then once you get down there and see like this grand vision for going all around the world it just it was it was a very special ride so um you know and i saw the transition into take flight as well too and then we uh we vacationed in 1996 and then we didn't come back until 2000 then took a couple of year break off and so obviously by then we had uh we were either uh buzz light year had just opened up or it was still on the way of opening up and it, it was just never the same after that so it's uh, you know you can argue that that all of the iterations never really had a true purpose in Tomorrowland, kind of in the same way that people argue that all the time about the Speedway. But regardless, it it just it had it had its own little special fit inside Tomorrowland, and uh, I miss it. I wish they could they could have something like it still to this day. If this is the attraction I think it's one of the most missed in the Magic Kingdom. People have such a fond memory of it who saw this attraction. I I feel 
Actually, I flew. I like to say it. I flew on. Um, if you had wings. Yeah. I remember seeing that. I don't know if I saw any of the later iterations of it. It's but um yeah no and I've obviously I didn't have the chance to do if you had wings but I, I've watched videos on it and it looked just as cool as the the later iterations ended up being and I, I would say I I can't off the top of my head think about something that uh, I think left a bigger hole when it was replaced. I mean, obviously it wasn't great when, when we got rid of snow White's scary adventures for, for a meet and greet inside a, a fairy tale hall and, and losing something like 20,000 leagues was a, a big loss, but, or, or Mr. Toads. But for me, those, you know, they, they, they left at the times they did, for for many reasons and and you can still get separate experiences that were very similar to those you know you can we can still go to disneyland and ride the submarine voyage or i can still go there and ride mr toads and i can still go there and ride snow white it's not the exact same as what we had and in our case some of them may have been better but it, they're still out there but that's just mm-hmm. not the case with if you had wings or Delta Dream Flight, it's they're they're just lost. Yeah, yeah. Now, Timekeeper made reference to if you had wings in his film, and he told Jules Verne, "You can't fly. If you had wings, I'd let you go." Now, several Walt Disney World and Disneyland attractions borrow technology used in If You Had Wings. Disneyland used the speed room effect for the super speed tunnel in the 1977 reimagining of the People Mover. Um, the tunnel was modified in 1982 to become the Tron game grid. Um, World of Motion and Epcot Center also had three separate speed room effects. El Rio del Tiempo made extensive use of projections um, embedded in elaborate sets, including similar cliff diver and underwater effects. Uh, the theme song of Feud Wings can be heard in Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World. It is given a more retro metronome and has no lyrics. Um, the attraction was parodied in the Simpsons episode Special Edna, in which monstrous robotic eastern airliners were depicted enslaving the human race at Epcot Center. That's just a great episode as a whole. Uh If you're a Disney fan and a Simpsons fan, then that one's right up there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is is a funny one. So, So again, continuing the theme of flight in Tomorrowland, the Star Jets, which is the Tomorrowland version of Dumbo the Flying Elephants, were considered the focal point of Tomorrowland due to its soaring spinning rockets and central location. And similar to Disneyland, they were located atop of the Wedway People Mover. And the Star Jets... Star Jets opened during the second phase of the Tomorrowland expansion in November of 1974. They were accessible by elevator from ground level. The attraction featured a large rocket based on the Saturn V in the center, um, with space shuttle-themed ride vehicles on spokes around it, and it required a D coupon. In 1994, the Star Jets closed as part 
the new Tomorrowland reimagining and reopened as the Astro Orbiter on April 30th, 1994. The central rocket was removed and the shuttles replaced with more futuristic individual rockets and features a highly stylized ironwork tower in lieu of the central rocket, along with various planets on the outside of the attraction, as to appear as if the rockets were weaving between the planets. The attraction does 11 rotations per minute and averages 1.2 million miles a year. In a narration for the Wedway People Mover, the ride is referenced as the League of Planets Astro Orbiter. And this ties the attraction in with the backstory of Tomorrowland, which states that the land is the headquarters for the fictional League of Planets, which helps make Tomorrowland an intergalactic meetings place that we'll talk more about in part two of our tour. In 2014, the Astro Orbiter closed for an extensive refurbishment. During this time, the attraction was stripped and given a new ride system. The exterior of the ride structure was given a new paint scheme, including the attraction's elevator shaft being painted orange, and the rockets were given a new look. As part of the refurbishment, it was speculated that the rotating planets, which had been stationary for a number of years, would be repaired. When the attraction reopened, however, the planets remained stationary. The replica of the Saturn V rocket that was once the focal point of the Astro Orbiter was painted camouflage green and used in the television series Thunder in Paradise, which was produced at the Disney MGM Studios. After the series ended, the rocket was placed in the boneyard scene of the studio backlot tour. Well, for me, Astro Orbiter is, if you're going to have a hub and spoke ride, Astro mm-hmm. Orbiter for me is the way to go. I know Dumbo is a lot of people's first, and it is it is the glorified photo op. Everyone wants their picture in a Dumbo, uh, mm-hmm. myself included. But, uh, you know, just our Astro Orbiter being up so high. I mean, you feel like you are very, very high up yes. once you get your your rocket going all the way to the top. And when you ride it at night with just lights kind of illuminating the entire area and you add in that height perspective too, it's, it's a very cool experience. This actually used to be kind of one of the ways that uh, my dad and I would wind down our, our trips uh, for, for a few years before I, I moved down here when back when they had like e-ticket ride nights and then eventually they trans obviously they went into just extra magic hours and stuff but when when we would do our last night at magic kingdom this would always be something that that we would say for right at the end because it just it's you get that view and the experience of being up there is it's just very special mm-hmm yeah, I agree. Uh, I wish ours at Disneyland were back up where it belongs instead, because right. it's not the same attraction. Uh, because I remember when it was back up where it was, and we'd take our children on it. Our son always liked to be as high up as you could go. And I, when I'd ride with him, I'd think I- I'm going to fall out of this thing because yeah. it just seemed like you know it was such a steep angle when you were all the way up. Oh, and um, and it moves so yeah. fast too. Uh-huh. compared to the other ones because it's a little bit further out on the arms so you get you get that sensation that it's moving even faster and it's 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 slightly intense so 
I, I oh, love yeah. our version of it. Never done the Disneyland version. Uh, you're for, not missing anything. Yeah, well, it's... Hey, then again, there's people like Rhino. I'm not going to throw him under the bus, but I know he doesn't listen to this anyways. So, <laughs> But he was actually defending the the Disneyland Astro Orbiter, and I just I shook my head. He, he thinks it's the perfect entrance to Tomorrowland. No, it blocks. It, it causes too much congestion. Now, if it were up high, it, it, that would be a great entrance to Tomorrowland. Yeah. So that you could walk underneath it or something. But it's not. It's just right there in the middle. Yeah. Blocking traffic. Yep. <laughs> now, the mid-1970s were a time of expansion for the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. For many years, the Disney company had been thinking about a thrill ride for the Magic Kingdom. They drew inspiration from two of Walt Disney's ideas. The Matterhorn of Disneyland that opened in 1959 and his idea for an indoor roller coaster in the dark. Now, the first choice for a thrill ride was to construct a Magic Kingdom version of the Matterhorn, but it was determined that Fantasyland was not large enough to house the attraction. So the Imagineers decided to revisit Walt's idea for an indoor roller coaster, eventually naming it Space Mountain, since Walt Disney World's Tomorrowland had plenty of space for expansion. Originally conceived for Disneyland, the technology to build this attraction did not yet exist during Walt's time. Now that a new location had been selected, Imagineers went to work on the development of the coaster. One early decision that they made was to develop the track for Space Mountain in-house, rather than using the Arrow Development Company. Wet engineers further decided to make the coaster a pure gravity ride, meaning the Space Mountain would feature no boosters or retarders. Early in Space Mountain's development, designer George McGinnis proposed a loop that would be seen from the attraction's interior queue and highlighted by a strobe light every two seconds. This idea was eventually rejected as too violent for a family attraction. To help with the costs of building the attraction, RCA was convinced to sponsor it, and in doing so, contributed $10 million. And Space Mountain cost $24 million to initially construct, and later on, $12 million to update. After 10 years of development, Space Mountain opened at the Magic Kingdom on January 15, 1975. At Space Mountain's grand opening, following RCA Chairman Robert Sarnoff's introduction of the attraction, 50,000 balloons were released into the air. When Space Mountain debuted, it was considered a technological marvel. The attraction was the first indoor roller coaster, the first roller coaster to take place completely in the dark, and the first coaster to be operated by computers. Space Mountain also had the distinction of being the second highest building in Walt Disney World. 183 feet tall, Space Mountain is just six feet shorter than Cinderella Castle. The supports for Space Mountain are also unique in that they are located on the outside of the building instead of the inside. This was done so that the inside roof would be flat and projections of space would be able to be shown on it. To create the illusion of stars above the riders, 20 mirrored balls are lit with spotlight. When light reflects off the balls, it hits the roof and it gives the illusion of stars. 
other now I'm talking about opening day. Other projections include the shooting stars, which are created by a moving spotlight, and the asteroids and galaxies, which are emitted from dimmed-down projectors. In total, the construction of Space Mountain required 4,000 pieces of steel and 12,000 feet of electrical wire. Since every piece of steel had to be accessible by stairs, the inside of Space Mountain is a maze of metalwork. Now, Space Mountain was built outside of the Magic Kingdom's perimeter and was originally accessible by a tunnel called the Star Corridor. This tunnel was under the original track of the Walt Disney World Railroad. And this indoor dark coaster has two tracks called Alpha on the left and Omega on the right. These tracks cross each other, and in order to accomplish this, the Alpha track had to be 10 feet longer However, the ride experience in either track is identical. Riders on the People Mover travel through the Space Mountain Dome on their journey around Tomorrowland and on occasion can get a glimpse of the coaster when its interior lights are on. Now, riders made their way through the queue to the spaceport where they boarded their single-width six-person spaceships. Now, after boarding, riders made a brief stop until they were clear to proceed. And once clear, the spaceships went down a small slope, then up a lift into the energy tunnel, consisting of a circular tunnel with flashing blue lights all around and sounds meant to signify the buildup of energy. The spaceships then make a 180-degree turn and begin to climb the lift hill. Projections of planets, stars, meteors, and other flying space objects are shown. As the lift hill area um, has an open ceiling. Once at the top of the lift hill, riders were taken down a small quick dip before being sent down through the numerous twists and turns the track had in store. The steepest drop is 39 degrees and the maximum speed is only 28 miles per hour. Seems a lot faster, mostly due to being in the dark. The end of the track sends spaceships through a swirling red wormhole, at which point the riders are safely returned to the unload station. Now, RCA sponsored the attraction from 1975 to 1993, and from 1994 to 2004, FedEx was the sponsor, and currently the attraction does not have a sponsor. Yeah, and I believe, if I remember correctly... When FedEx was the sponsor, uh, they they played a a fun video inside the queue. I think they did it with uh-huh. RCA too. But when FedEx took over, the the big deal was that Mario Lopez, uh, who we know now from his TV personality, but back in that day, coming off of Saved by the Bell, he w- he was a big deal, and and he was in that that video. So that's, oh, how funny. that's where my memories go to. <laughs> I do remember that video though. It was it was really entertaining. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I that was one of those changes that even when FedEx still sponsored the attraction, at one point it just it just went away. Mm-hmm. And they stopped showing the video anymore, but I I remember it. It was one of those one of those changes that uh, that really took away from the wanting to be okay with waiting in a in an hour long wait for Space Mountain. 
So the the little games and stuff that they put in now, that's not enough to get me to to wait. I'll do it with a fast pass, not with that. But if you put in a queue video that's entertaining enough, I'll wait in line. Mm-hmm. Now, Space Mountain underwent a major refurbishment, closing on April nineteenth, two thousand and nine, and reopening November twenty second, two thousand and nine. During its seven month closure, the ride tracks were replaced, although they kept the same exact design. The exterior of the attraction had a new concrete flooring at the entrance, new signs for Space Mountain, lime green in color, a digital fast pass sign, and a general deep clean of the surfaces of the building. And the ride queue also saw some enhancements. The signs in the queue were updated and replaced, new flooring, railings, and lighting in the tunnel. 20 video screens with separate game controls were installed, allowing guests to play games whilst waiting. And the queue was reworked to better separate fast pass and standby riders, and then also at a merge point, helping with the flow of the queue. The load area is now completely enclosed, so you can no longer see the track. And there is plenty of blue lighting around the area now as well. There are various space images projected to give you the feel that you are in space. The queue line was reconfigured, the floor received a new coating, and the new railings were installed, new consoles were installed for the ride operators, along with the air gates commonly found at most rides now. The ride vehicles received a new coat of paint, new seat coverings, but they are the same trains or spaceships. The unload area received the same updated theming of the load area, but has the addition of screens to view your ride photo. The post-show exit also received an update with updated posters, a homage to the Epcot Center attraction Horizon with the addition of a robotic butler, and a special camera effect at the end of the tunnel. Other than the updating of the track beams, theming and queue, addition of lights, screens and games, and general safety additions, the ride experience is basically unchanged from opening day. Screenwriter um, Max Landis wrote a feature film based on the Space Mountain attraction, which was developed for a short time at the Disney studio. The film was based in a 1950s retro future. This idea of the future wouldn't contain the internet or cell phones, but be powered by many large contraptions and robots. One key plot point of the film integrated the idea of people getting into hyperspace but when returning they would realize their soul was missing and they would eventually transform into terrifying monsters that was a different ending than the ride photo um the film was ultimately scrapped the space mountain building is featured as an easter egg in the disney films meet the robinsons and tomorrowland um three fatal Incidents have occurred at the attraction. In 1980, a 10-year-old girl from Caracas, Venezuela, became ill after riding Space Mountain. She later died from a lack of oxygen due to a pre-existing heart condition. In 2006, a 7-year-old terminal cancer patient died due to a metastatic pulmonary blastoma tumor. And in 2015, a 73-year-old man died of natural causes due to a heart condition. So, um, so Craig, is Space Mountain one of your must-do attractions? Oh, absolutely. Uh, while, while I am a huge fan <clears throat> of Disneyland Space Mountain for the actual uh, the ride experience itself, there is something about our 
Space Mountain that just it is so classic in every way, shape, and form. Um, you know, the I, I just it, it it's got it it's got that look to it that is just still so mesmerizing to me. I mean, it it comes as close as possible as recapturing like a white Tomorrowland, and mm-hmm. and I. I, I just I, I enjoy it so much and you know it's it's been one of those things this was I, I probably did this before I even did Big Thunder Mountain Railroad uh, I, I think I did at least because I can remember my my first trip when I came in 1992 when I was five I I was just tall enough to do Space Mountain and and definitely did it and by the end of it i think i enjoyed it meanwhile my sister was crying uh, (laughs) due to the experience but it's one of those things that's just just captured me right away and like so many people out there i i loved when the internet came around and then i could actually listen to the star tunnel music whenever i wanted to at, at my house and just be like transported away with that and you know the the ride's rough. It, it's getting harder, oh, harder yes. for me to experience it every year, and and yeah, I I miss the good old days when you had the open roof and you, you in the loaded stations when mm-hmm. you could see up and get excited every time the one asteroid would come by that everyone just called the big chocolate chip cookie. Right. Uh, you know, I I miss all those, but it's still it it, it just. It fits in perfectly. I, I only hope that Tron doesn't just completely foreshadow how important Space Mountain is to our Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, definitely. Um, I, I think your Tomorrowland is such an imposing. Well, it's larger, but we sort of blocked ours because yeah. we had the two-level queue. And um, I don't know. It, it sort of ruined the grandeur of ours yeah and um, that's it's part of what i love is even with uh, because of the perspective and how far back it sits i mean knowing that it is six feet smaller than cinderella castle you would never think that it's just mm -hmm. it's it's a marvel the building itself and then how they managed to fit two roller coaster tracks inside and just it's so it's so cool it is it's Mm -hmm. one of those attractions that separates disney from just any other place Mm -hmm. but i'm at the point now i have to sit in the front row otherwise i just get too nauseous because i need to feel the wind on my face yeah (laughs) so i go through it (laughs) yeah i i basically have to do the same i have to be in a front seat because i just i can't fit my limbs on the side Mm -hmm. It, it just doesn't work anymore. I need to be able to have my knees like sticking all the way up and out of the actual car. So, but I, I, I still, I still love it. I will ride it as long as I am physically able to. Now, um, 
Now, one that's, that's a little more my speed is <laughs> General Electric's Carousel of Progress. This was one of the attractions of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair that was transported to Disneyland. Uh, since the show had proven to be one of the most popular attractions at the New York World's Fair, General Electric decided to sponsor the attraction for 10 years. A new theater was constructed in Disneyland with the scenes being directly transported from the World's Fair. Although the show remained essentially the same, a few changes were made. A new voice was recorded for Sarah the Mother, and the 1960s scene, which, is, which was originally set during New Year's Eve, was updated. Another minor change was in the 1940s scene. The father now sat on a bar stool instead of a kitchen bench. Also of note, all references to GE's failed medallion home campaign were dropped from the attraction. After the conclusion of the show in Act 4, guests could board a speed ramp and transport to the second floor of the attraction. Here, guests could view a four-minute post-show narrated by Sarah and John, the mother and father from the attraction, and a large model that Wed Imagineering had created for Progress City. The model was based on Walt Disney's original concepts for the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, Epcot, as well as the rest of the Florida project. In the early 1970s, the attendance of the Carousel of Progress in Disneyland began to dwindle. General Electric decided that it was not getting enough advertising from the attraction. Their research also showed that 80% of the people who saw the Carousel of Progress were from California, and that most had seen the attraction numerous times. General Electric asked Disney to move the attraction to the newly opened Walt Disney World, where it would be exposed to a new and larger audience. Disney agreed, and on September 9, 1973, the Carousel of Progress was closed and moved to Florida. During its six-year run at Disneyland, more than 31 million people saw the show. A new show building was constructed in Tomorrowland for the Carousel of Progress. Unlike the minor changes that occurred when the show was moved to Disneyland, major changes were made to the Carousel show. For starters, the dazzling kaleidoscopic screens that entertained guests whilst they were loading and unloading were removed. The screens had been experiencing many technical difficulties, so they were replaced with silver curtains and a GE logo. <coughs> General Electric also asked the Sherman Brothers to write a new song for the attraction, since they decided that they did not want guests to wait for a great big beautiful tomorrow. Instead, they wanted them to buy their products now. After getting these instructions, the Sherman Brothers created a new song for the attraction called The Best Time of Your Life. Um, it's often mistakenly referred to as Now is the Time. Instead of talking about how great the future would be, the new song focused on the present. Although the Progress City model was moved with the show, GE did not want it to be a part of the Magic Kingdom version of the Carousel of Progress, which meant that they um, did not have to pay for a two-story building, um, carousel building. Some, some show space was available along the people mover track, so the model was cut up 
and a portion of the original model is now housed above Stitch's Great Escape and can be seen on the Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover. The rest of the model was thrown out due to a lack of storage space. The Carousel of Progress opened in the Magic Kingdom on January 15, 1975. The 1975 version of the Carousel of Progress featured a new voice cast as well as an update of the New Year scene. Instead of being set in the 1960s, the setting was changed to the 1970s. The daughter, son, grandmother, and grandfather were also added to the scene instead of only being referenced to. The final difference between the Disneyland and Walt Disney World versions of the Carousel of Progress was that while Disneyland's carousel rotated clockwise, Walt Disney World's carousel rotates counterclockwise. In 1981, the final scene was once again updated in order to keep up with the changing times. The new scene was now known as New Year's in the 1980s. When General Electric's contract expired on March 10th, 1985, they chose not to renew their sponsorship. The carousel was then closed to remove all references to General Electric. The General Electric logos, which were featured on the outside of the attraction, were changed to a new logo, which showed the blueprint of the six carousel theaters and stages. Inside, the General Electric logos that were featured in the loading and unloading theaters were also removed. These were replaced with the blueprint logo and the name Carousel of Progress. Although all of the major references to General Electric were removed, some of the household appliances still display the GE logo. In 1993, Disney announced a plan to remove the Carousel of Progress and replace the show with a new flying saucer attraction. It, it was eventually decided to keep the attraction, and on August 16, 1993, the Carousel of Progress closed for another major refurbishment. To blend in with the rest of the new Tomorrowland, the attraction was given a new mechanical theme. The blueprint logo was replaced with a new cog logo, and a series of large cogs were painted on the outside of the building. The attraction's final scene was also updated, now taking place in the year 2000. A new voice cast recorded the show's dialogue, including Rex Allen, who voiced the father in the original show, who now voiced the grandfather in the final scene. A four-minute pre-show video explaining the history of the attraction was also added during the refurbishment. When the Carousel of Progress opened in 1994, its name changed to Walt Disney carousel of progress and it's a great beautiful tomorrow was reinstated as the attraction's theme song following a decrease in attendance after the september 11th 2001 attacks carousel of progress was closed the attraction later reopened but was listed as a seasonal attraction leading many to speculate that it would soon be closed permanently since 2003, however, the carousel has been open nearly every day, and Disney states that it has no plans to remove the attraction. In July 2016, Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress received a new multicolor exterior paint scheme. At this time, the interior of the attraction was also cleaned and refurbished, with one of the theaters getting new carpeting and seats. The current show features an identical loading and unloading room, as well as scenes depicting Valentine at the turn of the 20th century, the 4th of July during the 1920s, 
Halloween during the 1940s, and Christmas in the 21st century. In each scene, the father of the family named John shows guests the newest technology and inventions of the time period. Other family members, as well as their dog, appear in each of the scenes. Although the story takes place over about 100 years, the family only gets slightly older throughout the show. Recently, internet rumors have claimed the carousel may be refurbished and the final scene updated in time for the Magic Kingdom's 50th anniversary celebration. I I don't know about that. I mean, there's only so (laughs) many things that Disney can do before Magic Kingdom's 50th anniversary. And right now, I think the list of rumors... Uh, suggests that everything in the park is going to change in time for the fiftieth. <laughs> I know this would it would be wonderful though if they changed this one. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, because I, I know you know supposedly one of the reasons they put Walt Disney's name on it was because then it would make it sort of sacrosanct that they would never then remove it because his name is on it, similar to what they did um, in, you know, in Disneyland with the Tiki room. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I uh, I think that it's, uh, there was definitely a waiver, uh, a wavering time where (laughs) uh, Carousel of Progress was definitely a, you, you love it or hate it kind of attraction. And I think, I think, a lot of people going to Disney have now learned to embrace it and yeah it's not flashy it has its issues both mechanically and and story-wise but it's it has a place in any in a Disney park it, it should be in one Disney park at least at all time and i don't see Disneyland clamoring to take it back at any point and, and unless you know unless Tokyo Disneyland wants to really show off what life was like in the Americas in the <laughs> in the twentieth century. Then I, I don't think it'll it'll quite work there. But I, it's just it, it can't it can't ever change too drastically. And uh, my whole thing with updating the last scene, yeah, I want to see it updated. I'm I'm tired of hearing about laser discs and. Uh, virtual reality (laughs) yeah virtual reality that's way under what's actually happening and car phones and it's just the fact that she's like holding the daughter's holding the ski boots that are clearly from the late 80s (laughs) no one has those anymore it would just be as simple as changing out the boot uh (laughs) there little stuff in there that that annoys me but at the same time too you know we're we're already past the turn of of our century that we're currently in now and it's not too long before we hit the 19 or the 2020s and mm-hmm. and we're all caught up how far in the future can you go before you have to start altering those those scenes in the past and i don't think there's anyone out there who would argue that the first 3 scenes aren't perfect in every way i agree so it's it's very very touchy. Would love to see the updates, but it, I don't want to see it hit the point where they say, "Okay, well, 
you know there's there's not that much drastic change between the 1920s and the 1940s so we'll kind of just wash it all together maybe maybe focus on the early turn of the 20th century the 50s the the 90s and then we'll focus on the future and i would hate to see something happen like that yeah, me too. No, I think they should leave the first three scenes the same. But always, I think updating the, the final scene every ten years or so would be nice. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's touchy. <laughs> so. But, and, well, this, and, you know, that's the perpetual problem with Tomorrowland. Yep. You know, when to update it, when not to update it, when to abandon it like we do at Disneyland. Yep. Um so, and, and, well, and. Well, we've come to that part of the show again, where it's the This Week in Disney History quiz featuring important events of the Walt Disney Studio and the Disney theme parks and whatever else happening in the, in the world of Disney. And the goal of this segment is not only to share historic milestones, but to stir memories and inspire conversations and even a little competition. We hope you enjoyed our little change in format that we did last week with the quiz. It gives you, gives you a chance to play at home a bit. So we, we of course, have Rhino back again from Dispop and our, our Universal show. He's, he's going to challenge um, Craig again. Yes. For the title, <laughs> or, the, or, or the one, so. I don't. We have to have a title for the winner, or some Grandmaster Disney or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So this is for the week of January fourteenth. Now, uh, I'm going to run through the rules again. This is it's. Uh, you get three points if you choose not to hear the multiple choice options. It's two points if I do give you the multiple choice options, and one point if I take away an incorrect answer. Um, now, you know what, Ryan, since you're our guest, since you, I made you go first last time, this time I'm going to give you the option. Do you want to go first, or do you want Craig to go first? Hmm. Well, since he was the winner, I guess I'll let him go first. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll concede to your victory. Mm. <laughs> okay, so Craig, on January 14th, Disney took a big step in bringing new technology into their parks when they introduced this to Magic Kingdom on January 14th, 2014. Oh, sorry for the dead air there. Um, I'll go multiple choice. Hey, is it A, Glow with the Show Mouse Ears 2.0? B, Online Dining Reservations Using Your Mobile Device? C, Fast Pass Plus, D, Virtual Attraction Cues. This is January 14th, 2014. Um, I'll go glow with the show. I'm sorry. The answer oh. is C. It is Fast Pass Plus. Gosh, I felt like it was another year before that. Yeah, no, they rolled out Fast Pass Plus at the Magic Kingdom. And, of course, it allows reservations of up to three rides only, per day. Only three years. It seems like it's been with us... So painstakingly longer. I, I don't care oh. for it, as people know, but some people love it. So that's great. That's all that matters. Yeah, I think the interface could be a little more user-friendly. I agree completely so. and entirely. <laughs> that's my number one issue with it, because it's not as simple. Yeah. The Disneyland one is... I enjoy that one, but... Okay, so, Ryan, here's your chance. Okay. Okay, to get in the game here right away. 
Okay, January 15th, 1975 was the opening day for these two Magic Kingdom attractions at Walt Disney World. Hmm, two attractions. This is January 15th, 1975. Um, I will need multiple choice for this one. Okay. Is it A, Space Mountain and Carousel of Progress? B, Space Mountain and Wedway People Mover? C, America on Parade and Aunt Polly's Dockside Inn on Tom Sawyer Island? Mm. Or D, the Steamboat Cruise from the Magic Kingdom to Treasure Island and Mission to Mars? Hmm. A. You are correct. It was Space Mountain, and it was also the Carousel of Progress. Very good. Some of my favorites. Carousel of Progress, one Mm -hmm. of my favorites for sure. I know, and always think that... um, it would have been earlier than that, but of course I had to cart it over from. That's what I, that's what I always forget. It feels like the opening day, but it's I remember that mm-hmm. they had to assemble it. So, yeah. you know. okay, so Ryan's in the lead with three points. So Craig, let's see if you can catch up here. January sixteenth, this popular stage show officially debuted at the Disneyland Resort on January sixteenth, twenty o three. Popular stage show debuted. Uh, multiple choice. Okay. A. Muppet Vision 3D. B. Disney's Aladdin, a musical spectacular. C. Aladdin's Oasis Dinner Show. D. Beauty and the Beast live on stage. I'll go with Aladdin, a musical spectacular. That is correct. So, opened at the Hyperion Theater in Disney's California Adventure. Now, it, it officially opened to guests the next day. Okay. And, but it ran through January 2016 with over 14,000 performances. Wow. So, and now we're, it's, it's a tie. Oh, so right, here's your chance to break the tie. On January 17th, 1985, we're going international here. This 3D experience opened at Tokyo Disneyland. Multiple choice, please. A, Magic Journeys. B, Captain EO. C, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. D, Working for Peanuts. B. B, I'm sorry, the answer is A, Magic Journeys. The 3D film. I I feel like Captain EO came out after 85, too, didn't it? Maybe, Mm. I don't remember. I don't remember. I feel like it was, because... Well, Thriller came out in 82. I don't know. I'll figure that out later. I wasn't born. (laughs) I was born in 85. I wasn't a baby doing research. (laughs) Okay, Craig, here's your chance to pull ahead. On January 18th, 1998, My Heart Will Go On from the the film Titanic (laughs) won the Golden Globe for Best Original Song Motion Picture, edging out this nominated Disney song. 98, uh, I'm going to say that was Reflections from Mulan. No, that is incorrect. Uh. That was the following year. This was actually... um, Hercules. It was. It was Go the Distance. Oh, shoot. 97 was the year. Craig Craig was busy. Um, He actually saw Titanic 13 times in the movie theater. Proud to to admit it. That was stupid. I know that Titanic came out in 97, but I was thinking 98 Oscars. Mm-hmm. Well, that Mulan came out in 98. Yeah. So, 
That was stupid. If I would have just done the multiple choice, I would have been fine. <laughs> oh, well. Unless you had Mulan on there, and then I wouldn't have. I actually did have Mulan. On okay, there. see, I would have <laughs> still tripped myself up on that one. Asterix. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right, Ryan, here you go. You can here pull ahead. January 19th, 2010, Disney officially announces the name of this popular vacation destination. Alani. That is correct. Very good. It's first and only resort in Hawaii so far. Okay. It's a 21-acre resort. It was scheduled to open in the fall of 2011. I hope to travel there for the first time in the next... I want to say the end of 2018, but in the next year and a half. That's what I'm going to say. You will love it. It's wonderful. Okay, Craig. Here you go. It looks like the best we can do is a tie score here. It's fine with me. Okay. January 20th, Walt Disney World announces the permanent closure of this attraction on January 20th, 2005. I'm not going to tie because that's... Wait, just you just said Walt Disney World, right? Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah, I need multiple choice. Okay. A, Discovery Island in Bay Lake. B, Cinderella's surprise celebration at the Magic Kingdom. C, Disney's River Country at Fort Wilderness. D, High School Musical 3, senior year at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, that didn't really help. Uh, 2005. Um, I'll go with uh, B. What was maybe? B? Cinderella's, Cinderella's surprise celebration yeah. at the Magic Kingdom. Actually, open since 1976, and it last operated in 2001. They announced that the River Country will remain closed permanently. That's what screwed me up. I knew that River Country closed closer to September, the millennium. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I assumed that they would have announced that it was closing a little bit sooner than. So that means in three years from now, we'll get the announcement that Stitch closed. Yes, so. that's right. <laughs> Wait, they announced that it closed years after it had been closed? That so they just the closed question, yeah. it and it had... Oh. There was always the hope it was going to reopen. But. Oh, weird. Okay, I didn't even yeah. know that. I knew it just kind of closed one day, but I didn't... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. But anyway, so congratulations, oh, Ryan. You made it six won. to three. So we'll have to have you back next week. Yeah. Best, best two out of three, right? That's right. Ooh. That's right. One and one. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, for joining us. Well, thank today. you for having me. We hope me. at home you enjoyed this week in um, Disney history, and and that you'll participate with us again next week. And of course, you'll all get a lovely parting gift of uh, you know um, rice saroni, the San Francisco treat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a lot of fun. So, and let us know if you are enjoying our quiz format for This Week in Disney History. And tell us how your scores are stacking up against our Ace Diz team here of Craig and Rhino. So, and we hope you'll join us next week when Craig and I conclude our tour of the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. Uh, Yeah, and and, and in case you're wondering, yes, we are back in present time. Yes, yeah, we are. (laughs) Here we are through through the through the magic of Craig's time machine. I know. Uh, 
Yes. Now, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy, Walt Disney World, The First Decade by Walt Disney Productions, Secrets of Walt Disney World by Jim Corcus. There are also a number of websites and articles I went through. Um, Yesterland, the Disney Wiki, Disney History, Tomorrowland, Then and Now, ImagineeringDisney.com, Disney's If You Had Wings, Looking Back 40 Years by Chuck Mirachi, and he wrote that for our very own Diz Unplugged. Yeah. It's very thorough. Um, TheFloridaProject.com and Theme Park Tourist. I'd also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol Bowling, for her invaluable work locating the additional material I needed for this episode. So, Craig, how can our listeners connect with you during the week? Uh, of course, you can find me every day just on some sort of thing that's happening with the Diz. Uh, <laughs> never know if it's going to be the Daily Fix, if it's going to be uh, one of the other podcasts or whatever. But, uh, of course, I always recommend if you want some serious entertainment, just follow me uh, at Twitter, at Teleclaster, and that's where you'll get the most of me with my funny quips and such. Okay. And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, you can follow me at mbowling121. My fa on Facebook, uh, you want to follow me at Michael Bowling. Now, this is the page with the Connecting with Walt logo. Mm -hmm. I do have another page, but I really don't post a lot of Disney things on that page. Um so if you want to know about connecting with Walt and, and Disney stuff when I'm at the Walt Disney Family Museum and all that, um, I'll post that on, on the Michael Bowling Facebook page. And on Instagram, I'm at Michael Bowling the Diz. But we have a whole nother way you can connect with me and Craig. Craig, do you want to tell our, our friends about that? Yeah. On Twitter, we now have a connecting with Walt handle where uh, Michael and I will be able to share uh, even more stuff about the show. Uh, just in, you know, obviously when new episodes go up, when there's uh, links to the older episodes that might uh, might just correlate to it that maybe aren't in our feed yet, as we've talked about before, uh, you know we're we're working on following some of the biggest uh disney history uh twitter sites and uh, you know we're we're trying to find all the stuff that we usually use in our days of of uh you know getting getting on twitter and stuff when we find interesting stuff related to disney we're going to try to compile that into one place uh that's all history oriented so that way we can have a place there it's your one-stop shop for uh getting information on all of that and <laughs> and yeah that's i'm excited to see how it goes see if yeah, we can uh, make it interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that'll be a fun way that, that those of you that are enjoying our stories on Connecting as Walt, that we can all connect together. Yep. Yeah. 
So if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland Edition archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show, leave some positive reviews and ratings. And if you are at the Walt Disney Family Museum on Saturday, January 20th, I think I will be there, too. So if you're there, be sure to say hello. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.